Our next lesson comes from the book of Judges. I'll be reading from chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Let us continue to listen for the word of God. When Joshua dismissed the people, the Israelites all went to their own inheritances to take possession of the land. The people worshiped the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. So they buried him within the bounds of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. Moreover, that whole generation was gathered to their ancestors. And another generation grew up after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ever since my arrival among you on the first Sunday of Advent, I have had a number of parents among us share with me a concern, a dilemma, a problem, a regret, call it what you will, in their lives. And often they have spoken of this in hushed tones, as if they're embarrassed about it. But they've also shared that they really don't know how to deal with it and what may be expected of them. I'll get to what that issue is in a minute. You may guess before I actually announce what it is. I read um, a wonderful little article by Rabbi Michael Gold, and he told a story in this article about a number of mothers were sitting in a doctor's office Uh, waiting to consult with one of the physicians. And a young mother among them said, our infant is driving us crazy, keeping us up all hours of the night. I don't know if it's colic or what it is, but we are just exhausted. The next mother said, well, my two-year-old is throwing temper tantrums. We can't go to the church or the grocery store without our, our daughter just throwing herself on the floor with a tantrum. The next mother says, well, my child is nine years old now, and that's when they start talking back, so you'd better get ready for that. The next mother said, well, I have a teenage son, and he only complains about two things, everything I say and everything I do. (laughs) An older gray-haired lady sitting among the other mothers said, just wait till they're 43. We have three children now in their 40s, so I can identify with the, the last mother on occasion. Uh, our children never get so old that they are beyond our felt need to express an opinion about their life or decisions or choices. And they never get so old that we cease to be unconcerned about their life, their decisions and choices. And yet, once our children are out of our homes and on their own, ostensibly, while our concerns may continue, our capacity to exert influence or effect change certainly does diminish. And this is as it should be. That is what God expects in the rearing of children, I think. We know that each of us will ultimately stand alone before our God to account for our life, our choices, our decisions. 
And no one is going to be judged on the basis of anyone else's performance. We will neither be saved by a loved one's faithfulness nor condemned because of a loved one's disobedience. We know that we can neither believe nor obey for anyone else. Not for our own children, not for our own parents. So preacher, just go ahead and tell us what this concern is that has been shared with you by so many people. I haven't kept count of it. When I say what it is, some of you are going to say, oh, did I have that conversation? If I didn't, I should have. You've probably guessed what it is. And it is this. How do we as parents cope with the reality that by and large, many of our children have left the faith and abandoned the church, or at least so it seems. And what are we to do about it, if anything at all? In recent weeks, I've shared with you some of the disheartening statistics about church attendance and the diminishing role of the church in American or Western society today. I mentioned one statistic shared with me by a Lutheran pastor friend of mine. She said that of the 83 million millennials in America today, only 15% of them have any kind of connection to a, a church or to a synagogue. That only adds to the angst and the regret of some of our older, more faithful members that really can't understand why children that they raised in the faith and in the church no longer seem to take it seriously in their own lives. The passage from Judges that we heard just a few moments ago reminds us that the presence or the absence of the knowledge of God can really be a generational thing. After Joshua and his generation passed away, after they had entered the land and the land was divided among the 12 tribes, we read that another generation grew up after them that did not know the Lord or the work that God had done for Israel. Kind of reminds me of that other better known passage perhaps that opens the book of Exodus. We're told that a new king, a new king came to the throne. It was a Pharaoh actually. And he was not familiar with Joseph and everything Joseph had done to benefit the Egyptian people and the Hebrew people during that season of a great famine. A generation came about, therefore, that forgot the source of their blessings, the source of their redemption. And the psalm that Catherine read to us earlier in this service is just a summons to God's people to tell the story of what God has done to each succeeding generation to remind them of its truth, its application in their own lives. But the question becomes, how do you do this when our children are grown now? They're no longer young and impressionable. They're independent, sometimes stubborn, set in their ways, like we were probably at the same time. And some older parents carry around a lot of guilt because they remember that passage from Proverbs that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And yet we felt like we did rear our child in the faith and in the church. And yet for some reason, inexplicable, they seem to have turned aside from that. Does that mean that we failed as parents? I don't think so. That proverb may work as a general rule, more often than not, when people do come back into the church, it is people who were raised in the church when they were younger. And maybe some event in their life changes their perception of the need for God. 
Maybe the arrival of a child, often that does it. Or the diagnosis of an illness. Or some other tragedy in their own life or in the life of the nation. There are many godly people who have come out of godless circumstances in their home life. And by the same token, many people who don't care a thing about God or spiritual matters that grew up in the homes of faithful and devoted parents. So the question arises, is there anything we can or should do with respect to our children? Are we without any kind of power or influence completely? No, we are not. We can't do everything, and we certainly can't make decisions for them. But we can do some things, and those things perhaps we should do. And so this morning, I'm going to offer to you just some suggestions, some counsel, you might say, because so many have asked about this. Now, if you're a younger parent, you may think, well, I can take a 20-minute break now. It doesn't relate to me. But you hope to be an older parent, I assume, at some point, and this problem may still be out there. Or this advice, I think, can be used with respect to a lot of people that we wish were closer to God, people we love and care about. Now, I don't like ordinarily how-to sermons. I hope you won't consider this a how-to sermon because there's no magic solution. Life and faith are much too complex for simplistic or automatic answers of one way, shape, or form, especially relational matters, marriage, family and parental concerns, that kind of thing. What works in one situation may or may not in another. Nonetheless, we need to keep in mind that there are seeds we can plant, things we can say, things we can do that may ultimately make a difference. We are not responsible for the results. That's in the Lord's hands. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet there are strategies or practices that we can embrace and attempt that may be used by the Spirit to make a difference in the lives of our older children who seem to be immune to the faith or seem to have abandoned the church. The first thing we can do, and perhaps the most important thing of all, is that we can pray fervently and persistently for that child. Do you do this with your child that may have left the faith? We pray about those matters with which we are most concerned. We pray for those people whom we most truly love. And we also pray for those situations where we realize that we don't have the power within ourselves to make a difference. It has to depend upon God. The temptation, of course, is for us as parents is to scold our children or to fuss at them. But I don't know a single person who's ever been badgered into the kingdom of heaven. It just doesn't work that way. We can exert our witness, of course, and I'm going to talk about that. But whilst people have not been badgered into the kingdom of God, there are many people who have been prayed into it. Countless times over the years, I've heard people say that they came to faith because a grandmother or a grandfather or a parent or a friend or an aunt or an uncle prayed consistently for their redemption and for a more vital relationship with their creator and redeemer. I guess the mother of Augustine ought to be the patron saint for those kinds of parents. Augustine talks in his confessions about his mother Monica prayed for her 
rebellious and profligate son for 30 years on end. She was not the one that was the instrument in bringing him to faith. That was the witness of St. Ambrose. But Augustine regularly and finally confessed that it was his mother's prayers more than anything else that brought him around. A prayer of his appears on the front of the bulletin. That's why I chose that particular prayer of preparation this morning. And the discipline of prayer leads me to another suggestion. Those people who pray ought to be the ones who recognize that we are not alone when it comes to the spiritual welfare of our children. It's not our responsibility alone. Our God has a vested interest, more so than we even, in the lives of our children. And we need to recognize that fact. Not only does God have a vested interest in our children, but the church does. If they were baptized in the church at some point, the whole church promised to nurture and support these children. That support doesn't end when they finish high school. You may know well the children of some of your friends in the church, and you may be the one who can speak a word that may make a difference in their lives. But our love for our children is but a dim reflection of God's love for them. And I can't tell you in the wake of having lost our son the comfort that has provided me in dealing with that loss. To know that my love is only a reflection of God's love. He loves my children, your children, more than we do. Thirdly, I would encourage all parents who may be concerned about this matter to maintain a loving relationship with that child despite the fact that their lives, their decisions may frustrate you or confuse you or even anger you on occasion your love for that child must never be contingent upon their compliance with your wishes your love must remain unconditional and sacrificial if it is to reflect the agape love of God for each of us you may do more than that but you should never do less the primary obligation of a parent is to love that child unconditionally regardless of their age or circumstances fourthly I would encourage you throughout your faith your own faith your own life of discipleship to model what it means to be a Christian what it means to be one who believes in God and seeks to obey God in your own life certainly your children will observe what you do and learn from that even more perhaps than what you say your witness is critical in their lives whether you know it or not so one of the best things you can do as a parent is worship regularly pray frequently meditate and read the scriptures regularly serve willingly in the life and work of the people of God your children may be dismissive of what you say but I assure you they will pay attention to what you do and you never know when something that you do will be a silent witness to the one you love so much just your very presence in worship is a witness do you know that I was thinking about these things when I was preparing this sermon so earlier this morning I I texted our three children who are now in their 40s 
and said, where's everyone going to church this morning? And I, I did that because two of our kids and their families are with their cousins down in Perdido on the beach. Just wondered if they were going to go to church this morning. And so I asked them, and one of my daughters wrote back and said, what's going on with this spiritual checkup? Why are you asking? I said, well, <laughs> the reason I'm asking is not only because I'm kind of preaching about that, but I also know you're going to be with your cousins and with your aunt and uncle. And I don't think any of them have ever darkened the doors of a church since they were married. So you never know what your going might mean for their discipleship. Maybe it'll cause them to reflect a bit. So be consistent in your own practice of the faith. And be consistent whether you're in their home or they are in your home. Don't change your routine. I read an interesting account of James Boswell, the famous biographer of the 18th century who wrote the biography of Dr. Samuel Johnson. Well, James Boswell was a man of significance and substance in and of himself. And after his death, one of his students decided he would write a biography of the biographer. And so he learned that Boswell's father, who was a judge in Edinburgh, Scotland, had kept daily journals of his life. And so the student got copies of Boswell's father's journals. And what he was looking for is that he heard Boswell on any number of occasions say that the most transform, transformational moment in his life came when he went fishing one day with his father. And he could still quote verbatim things his father had said to him. So he wanted to see if he could find that day and what the father said about it in his journal. Well, he found the day. And amazingly, this is what Boswell's father had written on that occasion. Gone fishing with my son, a day wasted. And I thought, boy, what a sad commentary for a father to say. To think that he had wasted a day when he'd spent it, spent it, spent it with his son. But then I thought, no. There's some good news here because this illustrates how we may not have any understanding of the impact of something we say or do on the life of someone else. For James Boswell, that day spent that seemed to have no significance to his father was a primary turning event in his own life. I remember when our grandmother moved in with us when my mother was very ill and she was a profound influence in my life and she wasn't one who talked a great deal about her faith but she demonstrated it day in and day out she was the most loving the most sacrificial the most most godly woman I think I've ever known and I remember when I would come home from school in elementary school or in junior high school when she was living with us and I'd walk past her bedroom before I got back to my own bedroom to get rid of my books and everything. And she would be sitting in her favorite rocker, reading the Bible in her lap. And she never talked much about her faith. But I knew there was a direct correlation between what she was doing when I came home from school and the kind of life and the kind of character that she had. So that was just something I saw, not something I heard. But it profoundly influenced me. I would encourage you, in a fifth sense, to share with your children honestly and faithfully and intimate 
intimately who you are, who you really are, not just on the surface, but underneath. I think our, parent, our children long to know us personally. They want to know what we struggle with, what our hopes, our dreams are, what our fears are, what really matters to us most in life. And I know sometimes we're awkward in talking about these kinds of personal things. I think men in particular have a problem with this, but all of us can. But do our children really know what we prize the most, what we cherish the most in our lives, what we hope for the most? One of our daughters a few years ago gave me for Christmas. If you have a problem doing this, this is what may help you. I thought I was a pretty open person, but according to this gift, maybe I wasn't. Because what my daughter gave to me was a book entitled All About Me. You can go online and buy one for $12.99. I looked it up this week. It's 83 pages for you to fill in different questions about your life. Sometimes you get multiple choice answers. Sometimes it asks you to share significant moments in your life. It is a revelation of who you are. And so the next Christmas, after I'd filled out the book, I gave that to her as her Christmas gift. But that's a way you can communicate who you really are to your ch children, especially those who are struggling with the faith in one way, shape, or form. And it may have a profound impact upon them. In conclusion... Those words you love to hear in a sermon. In conclusion, one more thing. Now, some of you may not like this. You may think it's coercive or manipulative in some way. I don't view it as that as all. I view it as a part of your discipleship and your discipline as a person of faith. And that is you can compose your will and make sure your will is a reflection of who you are, of who you love. And what you value. You know, we love those things, those people to whom we give. Money among other things. If you have a problem with that, take it up with a higher authority than me. Because Jesus was the one that said, where a man's treasure is, there his heart will be. He didn't say where his heart is, treasure would be. He said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. So what is your treasure going to say about you and your heart? Your will will be your last legacy, your final witness to your own children and to those who are closest to you. So you need to think about that. What are you and they going to do with the resources God has entrusted to you to manage? That's your responsibility. And most Christians will never be worth more than when they die. And most Christians die without a will. Oh, you have a will. The state will write one for you. But it's not a will that you have given any shape or direction to. What will your will say? And what is the lasting legacy and witness that you will provide for your family at the time of your death? So these are just some things to consider in dealing with your own children or perhaps other people. Pray for them daily and fervently. Let them know you're praying for them. Except that they are not your sole responsibility. That God and the church are very much interested in them and committed to them. Continue to model and mentor the faith to them as best you can. And none of us does it perfectly. Share with them openly, honestly, and intimately who you are and what you think has made you who you are. 
and leave your estate so it too can be a final witness to what you have believed, to what you have taught, to what you have valued. And may God bless you and those you love so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.